So we're in the middle of uh, this year-long series called uh, Ancient Words, Relevant Truth, uh, and we're dividing it into six parts, and the part that we're in right now is the rise and fall of Israel. Uh, and if you are new to Riverridge this morning or recently, uh, and you haven't picked up a relevant reading guide, <clears throat> encourage you to do that. They're out in the lobby, uh, and just start with whatever the reading for tomorrow is. I think we're in Second Kings or around there about. So encourage you to get involved so that you get in the, hit on Sunday morning, but also doing this on your own throughout the week. This morning we're going to be in Second Samuel chapter eleven. 2 Samuel chapter 11. If you want to turn to that, uh, I think there's going to be a, a few things you're going to want to underline, maybe put a note or two uh, in your Bible. But we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. Of David committing adultery with Bathsheba. And I want to tell you where we're going with this. And, and many of you probably know that story. You know parts of it that may be brand new um, to some of you, what the story is about. But we're going to talk about three things this morning. First, we're going to talk about the ugliness of sin. And then we're going to talk about the gift of forgiveness. And then we're going to talk about the faithfulness of God. And we're going to look at the story of David and Bathsheba. And we're going to look at a lot of the parts of that story. But then we're also going to look and see how is that part of the larger narrative of what God is doing. right? And, and when it comes to sin, all of us sin. Right? That's something that every one of us deals with and struggles with and recognizes in our lives. But the fact is that sin and its consequences are ugly. And so we're going to look at this passage and we're going to see some things that David did. Maybe if we learn from his mistakes, kind of let him pay the stupid tax, that we can learn some things in our own lives to not sin as much. But then we're also going to talk about forgiveness. And, and the forgiveness part of this morning, just to give you kind of a heads up, it's going to be much more of a practicum than it is an actual teaching on forgiveness. And then we're going to finish up and we're going to talk about God and his faithfulness and how we see that in the larger story of David. <clears throat> so let's begin with the ugliness of sin, the ugliness of sin. So we left off last week um, in Second uh, Samuel, and Jay spoke uh, about David and kind of the great things that David did in writing Psalms and David and Goliath and, and that type of thing. And so now we're in Second Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. It says this, In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab, so Joab is his general, and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now again, we know that at some point in this story that David is going to commit adultery with Bathsheba. Um, and what we're going to do is we're going to see some of the things that led up to that, and we're going to kind of use that to look at in our own lives. But there's interesting, as the narrator is kind of explaining the story, he, he puts in a detail here which like, why does he say that? He says, in the spring of the year when the kings go to battle. And so spring was the time when nations and, and cities and so forth would go to battle against each other because the harshness of the winter was over. But come summer and late summer into the fall, everybody needed to come back to harvest the crops so that people on both sides of these battles would be able to sustain and, and so forth. And so, but he says, he says, kings went to battle, but David remained in Jerusalem, right? And he puts that in there because that detail is important. 
Because David isn't where he was supposed to be. And as we walk through the ugliness of sin, we're gonna give you, I'm going to give you a couple of principles that if you want to write these down. But the first one is that David was where he shouldn't have been. And one of the reasons that we get caught up in sin is because we are not where we are supposed to be. That we are in the wrong place. And when it comes to sexual sin, this is especially true that we're in the wrong place, and that leads down a road to sin. You know, it could be a physical place, that you are physically just in the wrong place with somebody, in a place that you shouldn't be. You're with a married woman in a place that you shouldn't be, in a hotel room or whatever. There's two people who are single, and you, you find yourself here or there, and it's, sometimes it can be a physical place that we just shouldn't be. Sometimes the place that we shouldn't be is an emotional place, that you find yourself or you behave yourself into an emotional connection with somebody that you're not married to, right? And, and it doesn't begin with, hey, let's have an affair, but it begins with, gosh, he really understands me. You know, she listens to me in a way that my wife doesn't listen to me. He gets me. She gets me. And you put yourself in this place emotionally that leads to greater and greater sins and greater steps down this path. Or maybe the place is a cyber place, if you will. That you're on places on the internet that you just shouldn't be. And, and it's more than pornography, right? I mean, there are places of Netflix that no, none of us should be, and places of Hulu and, and cable TV and all that kind of, it, it's out there, and we find ourselves there and when we get in these places, whether it's physical, emotional, or cyber places, then the dominoes fall as we make one decision after another. And we look at David, and he was in the wrong place. He should have been out with his men on the battlefield. Then in verse 2, it says this. It happened late one afternoon. And, and I love just the storytelling aspect of it. Like, if you were reading this for the first time, like, it happened late one afternoon. You're like, what's going to happen? And it's going to unfold in kind of an interesting and ugly way. It says, When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. You know, when it comes to pornography, pornography, we think, well, it started with like the internet or it started with Playboy. Like, it existed back here. This is a thousand years before B.C., right? And David is experiencing some visual pornography, if you will. And the thing is, he sees her, she is beautiful, and she's bathing, and he could have just stopped right then. And he could have said, you know what? I'm looking at her, I'm lusting, but I'm supposed to be at the battlefront. And he could have called downstairs off of the roof and said, hey, bring my sword, bring my shield, I'm going to the battlefront. But he doesn't do that. When we get into sin and especially sexual sin, it is a series of steps that we take one after the other. But at any point, we could turn back. But that's not what David does. It says this, And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And so the, the names in there are significant. So if you've read the stories of David, you, know, you may know this. It talks about David had these mighty men. Like this was his inner circle, his inner circle of the mighty men, the fighting men. And Iliam, 
is listed as one of those mighty men. So this is a close friend and also the father of Bathsheba. And Uriah, the Hittite, was also one of David's mighty men. So he knows who this one is once this servant has said who this is. But it's interesting, as you read this, and if you, you kind of got to look closely at this, but is this a statement or is this a question? It's a question, right? The servant says, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Ilium, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? He's asking David a question, but he, uh, because he recognizes that where David is going is not a good idea. It's a bad idea. He's saying, isn't this the wife married to Uriah? It is a confrontation of sorts because he asks it as a question. There's a really good principle in there for us. That if someone is questioning what you're doing, you know what we do? Here's our response all the time, right? And you hear it here, you hear it everywhere, right? Don't judge me. Don't judge me, right? And I would challenge you, if those words come out of your mouth, if that thought goes through your mind of, hey, who are you to judge me? It's one of those signs that go, if I'm saying that, maybe I ought to have some more thought about that. Now, we, de we definitely get judged wrongly and for silly stuff and that kind of thing. But if, if you feel that from somebody else, it may be an opportunity, or it definitely is an opportunity to take a second look. Because if David had taken a second look here, he could have said, oh yeah, she is married. Go get my sword. Go get my shield. I'm heading to the battlefield. But he doesn't do that. It says this, verse 4. It says, so David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and she lay with her, and he lay with her. There's an interesting comma there. It says, and she came to him, comma. Right? When there's a comma, you're taught to read, it's, it's a pause. And he lay with her. At any point, he could have turned back. He could have invited her over. Right? And they're getting ready to, right? And he goes, oh, oh hold on, hold on could have stopped at any point. Goes, well, you know, I just brought you over here because I'm heading up to the battlefront. Anything you want me to say to your dad and your husband? That would have been a much better result, but he doesn't do that. It says he lays with her, that they slept together. Then verse 5 says, and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Now up until this point, <clears throat> the sin is pretty well hidden. It's just David and Bathsheba, and my guess is the servants probably have an idea of what is going on. But at that point, it's just the two of them. But then when she gets pregnant, well, now the world is going to know. The kingdom is going to know. Uriah is going to know. <clears throat> and so at this point, David goes in to cover-up mode, to cover up what he's done. And so he sends word to the front lines to Uriah. And he says, hey, Uriah, come on back. So Uriah comes back to Jerusalem. And David has him over, and they're just talking, kind of, how's the battle going? How are things? We're winning or we're losing? What's, how's Joab doing? He's just, it's a friendly conversation. And then he says, hey, why don't you go back and 
just spend some time with your wife, right? Uriah doesn't go to his house to see Bathsheba. Instead, he goes and he sleeps with the servants, with the other men. And here's how Uriah puts it. Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, or tents. And my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah, this guy, was incredibly honest, incredibly integritous. And he goes, I couldn't do that. Like all of my friends, all of my men, Joab, they're all sleeping in a tent, eating rations and all that kind of stuff. It's just not right for me to go and eat and drink here and then go sleep with my wife. That would just be wrong when my men are out there doing that. Well, that's a problem for David because he obviously wants it to look like Uriah got Bathsheba pregnant. So David then moves to plan B. So the next night he invites Uriah over and he gets him drunk. Say, hey, let's have some beers here. Let's have a good time. Thinking that if he gets him drunk that maybe his kind of sensibilities will be a little bit down, a little bit softened. So he gets him drunk. He says, all right, why don't you head back to your house? But instead, he sleeps on a mat, not with Bathsheba. So plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. And so now, in the cover-up of his sin, he goes to plan C. He writes a note and sends it with Uriah back to give to Joab, the head of the army. And here's what the note says. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the front of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. He orders a hit on Uriah. Sends him to the front with a note that says, pull back from the fighting. And so Joab does what David has ordered. Says this in verse 11. Says, and the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. That I want us to see in this part when it comes to the ugliness of sin. And you can see right here, I mean, sin is ugly. I want to draw out a couple of these for us. The first is the problem of cover-up, right? Like, David, I mean, sleeping with Bathsheba, that's a sin. But it really got messy and uglier and uglier when he's trying to cover the thing up. And, you know, when we sin, our first inclination is to try and cover it up. Like, I don't want anybody to know. And I'm going to lie and cover up. And, not, and that's exactly what David does here. And the thing is, and you see this, is the cover-up blew the thing up. The cover-up was worse than just confessing the sin at the beginning. And don't we see that in our world around here? I mean, we see it in politics. We see it in scandals. We see it everywhere. It's like somebody does something, right? And then they try and cover it up and lie about it and get people involved and cover it up. And that's when the thing all blows to heck, right? When, they, when that happens. And so there's a great principle. Like when we sin, just confess it. Just put it out there. The cover up, it's, like, it's almost like 
sin and cover-up. It's not sin plus cover-up. It's like sin multiplied times cover-up. It's, it's, it's multiplication, not addition of the problem. Here's the second truth that I want us to see in this. Sin has collateral damage, right? So David sins with Bathsheba, sends Uriah to the, to the front lines to fight, right? But I don't know if you noticed this, but it says this. I'm going to read verse 17 to you again. And it says, And some of the servants of David among the people fell. So Joab puts uh, Uriah at the front lines with his little squad of people, and then he pulls back, and he gets shot by archers, I think, from the top of the wall, if I remember correctly. But, but here's the thing. It's not just he who dies. It's the men who died with him. And Uriah is innocent, but those other people have got nothing to do with Bathsheba or David or anything. That there is collateral damage. When we sin, we have collateral damage. We cause collateral damage. And especially when we're talking about sexual sin. That it causes damage in other people's lives. That that person has a husband or a wife and kids. We have a husband or a wife and kids. And there's collateral damage. And even if it's two single people, say, well, we're just single people. We are consenting adults. Really? Are you going to consult, are you gonna consult your future, your wife's, or your girlfriend's future husband or wife? You see what I'm saying? Like, it's just like there's collateral damage damage there. That you're sleeping with that person, but that person is going to become somebody else's husband or wife. Are you going to consult them as well to see if they consent? You see, there's this collateral damage that comes with sexual sin and with lots of other kinds of sins as well. Here's how the story concludes. Verse 26. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David did had displeased the Lord. You know, <clears throat> I do wonder, and it's kind of speculation, but I wonder, like, how many people were fooled by this whole thing? Like, counting to nine is the same 2,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago as it is now. Nine months have it. Did people figure that out? I kind of wonder if they did. But in the next chapter, Samuel, 2 Samuel, tells this story. And if you haven't read this, it was part of our readings maybe a week, week and a half ago. Definitely go back and read chapter 12 because Nathan confronts David. So Nathan knows what's going on, right? And he confronts him in this story. It's a, it's a fabulous story. But the other entity, not a person who knew was the Lord. And the narrator tells us, the thing that David did, that David, that David had done, displeased the Lord. And if you look at this, I want you to notice just, and I don't always notice this, but it struck out to me this time, is it's the thing that David did, not the things that David did. Like the whole mess, the whole ugliness of sin is all wrapped up in there together. Not fleeing from temptation. Sleeping with Bathsheba. Covering up by killing Uriah. And then Uriah, some of his men died as well. And the way that it's phrased here is the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The word displeased in Hebrew is the word rawah. 
right? And it's this word, it's displeased is maybe even like a, a little bit of a ease of translation there. It really means it's this, this evil or this wickedness that he had done. When you look at a story like this, it's pretty easy to point the finger at David and go, you blew it. You were an idiot. You sinned in a major way, and then you covered it up, and then there was this collateral damage. And it's very easy to do that. But I want us to pause and to look inward and to ask the question, how do we sin? Instead of saying, David, David, you look inward and ask yourself the question, do I sin? How have I wronged God? How have I wronged people in my life that I love? Because the reality is that we do that. We may not sin in the same ways that David did, but we also sin. So the second part of what we're going to do this morning is the gift of forgiveness. In Psalm 51, the heading is this. So this is not verse 1, but there's a little heading that comes before verse 1. It says this. It says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And I love the present tense of that. It says, this is what he wrote. It just kind of came from the heart right when Nathan said something to him and he realized what he had done and he kind of put it all together. This psalm comes flowing out of him. And so here's what we're going to do is I'm going to read this psalm to you and I'm going to read it pretty slowly. And I want you just to take it in. And so if you want to read it on the screen, you can do that. If you want to read it in your Bible, if you want to close your eyes or just read it on your phone, however you want to do that. But I want you to just take this in and allow this to speak to your heart as your confession of your sin. Okay? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in my sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing heart. Then, I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. 
O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise me. Do good to Zion in your great pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, and whole offerings. Then the bulls will be offered on your altar. That is a psalm of forgiveness. I encourage you to mark that in your Bible. Whenever you're feeling that weight of guilt and sin and shame in your life, go and make his words your words. And I love verse 17. The sacrifices of God. What is it that God desires from us? A broken and a contrite heart that said, I was wrong and my heart is now with you, God. The final piece of this morning is the faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. You know, David is known for the many great things that he did. Goliath, the Psalms, and so forth. Building up God's kingdom, a man after God's own heart. He's known for those things. But this event in his life was a turning point. That if you read from this chapter to the end of David's life, you will see that his life falls apart in many ways. That one of the consequences of his sin is that their child dies at seven days old. And then you look and you can see that his family falls apart. His sons rebel against him. His sons do, and daughters, the sons do awful things to his daughters. And it's just this, this kind of downward spiral of his life as you read his story playing out. If we go back from chapter 11 to chapter 7, verse 7, or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 12, it says this. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you shall come from, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So from the lineage of David, God will establish his throne forever. Down the line, that's going to be Jesus. I want us to go back for a minute with David and Uriah, right? And you read about Uriah, and, and it's one of those things like, if I were God, and it's a good thing for everybody that I'm not God, right? But if I were God, I might ditch David and go, look at this guy, Uriah. Like, he is an upstanding man. He is honest. He has integrity. He won't even go sleep with his wife when his men are at the battlefield. This is a guy. Like, I may be tempted to go to plan B. But that's not what God does. Because God made a covenant promise to David. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I want you to know and understand this. That that promise of his faithfulness to David is also his promise of faithfulness to you. Because when you sin, I don't know what consequences you've had to endure because of your sin. 
David had to endure consequences. We endure consequences. But consequences does not mean that God pulls his love for us. It doesn't mean that he pulls his faithfulness to us. You see, God makes all of these statements about you because you are in a relationship with him. When you place your faith in Jesus, when you accepted him as your savior, all of these promises to you became true. That you are loved, that you are holy, that you are redeemed, that you are forgiven, that you are a child of God. All of those things are true of you, regardless of your sin and regardless of the consequences of your sin that you've had to endure. That overall promise does not change. I love the way this other guy I was listening to this week put it. He said, God draws straight lines with crooked sticks. Isn't that great? That God can still draw straight lines with you even though you're crooked. Even though I'm crooked, God can use my life and draw straight lines with crooked sticks. I want to fast forward as we close. A thousand years past David. When the fulfillment of this promise happened, when Jesus was born. And so at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he's laying out the lineage of Jesus from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And I want to read to you the middle part of this. Okay, this is just the middle part, not the whole thing. It says, And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of, and it goes on from there. And you look at this, and you go, why did Matthew, in writing in this lineage, why did he include, was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah? Like, why bring Uriah back into this? Did David, I mean, excuse me, did, did Matthew have kind of vendetta against David? Like, let me bring up his dirty laundry? No, he did it because in here, there's a signal right from the beginning to us that God draws straight lines with crooked sticks, right? He could have just said, and David was the father of Solomon, and Solomon was the father of, and on it goes. But it doesn't do that. He puts this intentionally in there so that we see where Jesus came from as an understanding for us that though we may sin, God is not done with us. Though we may experience the consequences of our sin, God is still faithful. And God is going to work in your life and do amazing things in your life, not because you've been faithful all the time, all the time, but because he is faithful to you. To bow your heads. I know this is a lot to absorb. And so I just want to give you a few minutes of quiet just to process just to hear from God. And maybe God is speaking to you about a sin in your life and consequences. Maybe God's speaking to you about forgiveness. Or maybe God is speaking to you about his faithfulness and he's not done with you yet. But just allow him to speak to your heart now.